I have a couple of guests with me for this special episode today. Uh, we'll be discussing the US election. I have with me George Evans-Jones, a frequent writer on US politics, and somebody you've met before, and that's Will Pascal, who admitted to me earlier that he hasn't actually been following the US election at all. Thanks for the, thanks for the intro, Ed. Good to be here. Yeah, cheers, Ed. Thanks for that one. You must have been scraping the barrel a little bit. Here now with more news, debate and opinion. So what is actually going on? Yeah, great question. Um, and it's and it's evolving, right? You know, I, I've, I've kind of turned the rest of my screens off. So um, for the first time in a few days, I'm not getting constant updates about what's happening in some obscure county in northeastern Georgia. Um, but w- what is going on is it is it looks like Donald Trump will lose an election and he'll be turned into a first term president. Um, history will, I suppose, decide whether he is viewed as a disgraced single-term president. But the facts are he's looking like he'll become a one-term president. And I suppose that was objective number one. I'm sure we'll talk more about the the specific results, but objective number one to make him a a loser um, has been achieved. I, I think specifically at the time that we're speaking, he holds, Biden that is, holds uh, narrow leads in Arizona, a lead narrower enough in Georgia as to have a recount call this afternoon, uh, this afternoon UK time, um, a growing lead in Nevada, which is looking more and more sure, and a growing lead in Pennsylvania, which is also looking more and more sure. Um, he's not been able to win areas that he thought he might, like Florida, uh, North Carolina, um, Ohio and Iowa, and he's probably failed to make significant dents in Texas, right at the top of the ballot and right at the bottom as well. Now that's had knock-on effects onto other significant elections that were held this Tuesday. Most significantly, I'd say the Senate. Now, the Senate was considered um, to be a little bit closer just because you need more things to fall into place. But the Democrats, I would say, were probably the favourites to take the majority off the Republicans. Again, at the time that we're speaking, it looks like that hasn't happened. They've picked up gains in Arizona. Mark Kelly has beat Martha McSally. um, And they've picked up gains in Colorado. But other high targets, such as Maine, um, Iowa and North Carolina, it looks like they haven't done. Similarly, they haven't expanded on their majority in the House. Now, that's something that they were very confident that they would be able to do. And we can talk about why that's happened or why we think that that's happened a little bit later. They'll still be the largest party in the House of Representatives and they'll have the White House. So big picture, that's where we are. Uh, but they haven't been able to, to take the Senate. I don't think there, are, there will be a runoff in Georgia, two runoffs in Georgia in January due to some specific state laws that, that they've employed. But... Um, Right now, you ask what's going on, and I think that's that's probably as concise as, as I could be. And um, Trump is, I mean, he declared victory um, <laughs> a few days ago, and he's arming arming up with lawyers, isn't he, ready to... Um... Yeah, I mean, he's, he's going to try, right? And this shouldn't be a surprise to us at all. He said that he's going to do this for weeks, if not months before. He's already had legal cases thrown out of Nevada and thrown out of Michigan. 
um, it's 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 a bizarre situation where even his own supporters can't keep up. Does he want to stop the count as he did in Pennsylvania when he was leading, or does he want to carry on the count? Um, if he carries on the count, it might appear like he's doing better in somewhere like Arizona. Um, if they stop the count, Joe Biden becomes president. So I don't think he has, and this isn't me saying it, this is you know impartial, non-partisan expert saying it. Um, I don't think he has much of a leg to stand on on that front. He reminds me um, a little bit of, you know, when you used to play football down the park as a kid, and the, the kid who... Um, whose ball it was, was losing, like headers and volleys or something, and he just picked up the ball and would go home. So none of you could play. Completely. Completely. I mean, um, you know, just just having a look um, just before we came, just before we, we, we went live, um, you know, hearing people say he's not going to show up to Joe Biden's election. Um, he's never going to concede, apparently. He's just always going to say it was fraud or, or, or it was stolen or whatever. Um the analogy of a child is spot on. It is exactly that. It's, yeah, it's my ball, I'm going. That's it, game over. Absolutely. I mean, you kind of touched on it there with almost the Democrats underperforming, I guess, in the Senate. So, but mm. why, why are the polls so continuously underpredicting success for, for populism? And you've seen it with the Brexit vote, arguably last year in the lead up to the general election in England, Trump's last, well, his, his initial victory four years ago. Yeah. So first of all, I think the premise of that question is important and you've got it right. I think it's less of a question of why are the polls wrong, and it, but more of a question of why are the polls underrepresenting or missing certain, um, uh, certain pockets of support. Um, and I think the example that I, that I give for that is if you look at how Joe Biden polled this cycle, his polling number or his predicted share of the vote was, was actually pretty good. Um, it was quite accurate, right? It was a couple of points off um, in places like Texas, Ohio, and more long shot places. But it was well within you know, what, what you'd call the margin of error. Trump's on the other hand, or the populist that you're talking about in your question, he was way out. It, it, it was five, six, seven points out. If you're being super, super kind, you might stake a claim to say, oh, five points is within the margin of a big error. But um, he was consistently um, being, uh, being underrepresented, right? And, and I think that begins to talk to this theory of shy Trumpers. You might have heard about it in 2016. You might have heard about it this cycle. And um, I, I was sceptical of that theory, I must admit. And I think a lot of people were. What do you mean, shy Trumpers? Look at the guy. You know, they wear great big red MAGA hats. And you, how, how can these guys be shy? Um, and, and listening to some Democrats talk before this election, they were even going as far as to say, you know what, there are going to be some shy Biden voters. Now, we don't know whether that has manifest, and, and that can still happen, by the way. But you know, you talk about kind of suburban women, perhaps, or soft Republican types who maybe weren't comfortable in the families that they are in or the communities in which they reside. Maybe weren't comfortable with saying, um, I'm going to vote Joe Biden. I, I don't like Donald Trump. And that belief that there were shy Trump voters um, 
was actually taken up by the Trump campaign, not by himself, obviously, because we've just spoken about this guy sort of is, you know, is, is a, that's my ball, it's game over. He doesn't offer it. Um, but Kellyanne Conway, um, I think she's just senior advisor. She might have a specific title, but she works very closely with Trump. She said to the Washington Post in October that it's considered socially desirable, particularly if you from an affluent community or you have a college degree to be against Trump. And, you know, it was interesting that that, that idea has managed to penetrate deep into the Trump campaign. Um, you know, it, more broadly speaking, it's it's a, um, a version of the, the Bradley effect, um, which is to do with um, how voters respond to white and black candidates. Um, it's slightly different, uh, but it, it's a kind of a manifestation of that, right? Um, so I, I was I was skeptical about this. There were some polling companies um, that have a Republican lean that were saying this is going to be much closer, um, you know, and 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 it, and it and it and it really was. If you look at the final result, Biden was predicted uh, to, to to lead nationally by eight point five points. There was an ABC poll that was released in the last week of October, I think that had Biden up 17 points, 17 points. The guy will end up winning Wisconsin by about one point. And so we are human. We lie all the time. We lie to our doctors, our colleagues. Uh, you know, sorry, but we lie to our friends and family as well. I don't think it's a uh, too great of a stretch to say, yeah, people are lying because in the words of Kellyanne Conway, it's socially desirable. Uh, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that we're willing to lie to anonymous pollsters. And just a curious kind of tail off is what's happening in Georgia at the moment. Georgia was one of the few states where both Trump and Biden's support was pretty well calibrated. Um, I don't know why, along with Arizona and, and Minnesota, I don't know why that was the case, but Georgia has two Senate races in January, and I would be interested to see what reaction polling companies get when they go into the field for the first time, because I expect there might be a bit of a backlash um, from not only observers like us, but also campaigns, right? You know, these are the guys who stake millions of pounds on decisions that have been informed by pollsters. So we might not have to wait that long for... Um, uh, some more evidence or, or to increase the sample size. I mean, obviously, it's looking more and more likely that Trump has lost. But realistically, Trump, Trumpism itself hasn't been repudiated. Um, yeah, it's still there. It's still about. I mean, he's he's likely to stick around, isn't he? Yeah, I, I mean, I. There are more expert voices um, into the state of the Republican Party than, than myself. Um, but I find it really difficult to see Trumpism being defeated here. Um, you know, you're right to say that um, Joe Biden won the White House and the Democrats held a majority in the House, but they failed in the Senate. There is kind of a... a um, a ground there that could be fertile for uh, for a kind of a, a bite back. Now, the Southern District of New York might 
uh, say something different. They might quite fancy facilitating a campaign reunion with his colleagues in jail. But if that doesn't happen, and I think there's every chance that does happen, by the way, then yeah, I can see that when the dust is settled, Trump remains on the scene. I think look at what's happening now as this administration begins to unravel. Um, a lot of Trump's team or allies, surrogates, whatever, were taking to Twitter and their social media accounts yesterday and saying, where are the 2024 candidates the voters will remember? And I think that speaks to the core, the, the, the OG crux of Trumpism, the fact that this is a populist campaign. And in a similar way to 2016, it's a campaign against the entire establishment, including the Republican Party. You know, it's, it's, it's that great irony, isn't it, that once Trump is in power, he commands total, absolute loyalty, but he was happy to rip apart the party um, from top to bottom on the primary stage in 2015 and 2016. And so there is a core to Trumpism that feeds on grievance, I think. Um, but there's also, and this is kind of a bit perverse and I feel almost a little bit dirty saying it, but you know, his performance wasn't that bad. I know Joe Biden in terms of votes has done historically well. And in terms of the electoral college, it looks like he might match Donald Trump's 306 from four years ago. But I think the more savvy in the Trump team right now will be looking around and thinking, okay, you tell me another Republican politician in the last decade who could increase the share of the Latino, the Asian and the African-American vote all by 3%. You tell me another Republican politician who could claim 20% of the young male African-American vote, one in five, I think that's incredible. And you show me another Republican politician in the last decade who could add 7 million votes to their second term tally. You know, when you add that to the fact that the Republican Party wasn't repudiated, as he said, down the ballot. So they held Senate seats in Maine. Um, uh, Susan Collins, who is a fairly moderate uh, uh, Republican, they held the Senate seat in Iowa. Um, Joni Ernst, who is a big kind of Trump-loving uh, person, they were kind of able to, to hold in place the, the core of their party. And at the same time, even go better and, and you know achieve some of those aforementioned results that I've just given. I think there could well be a, a case to be made that kind of goes a little bit like, we did all of that while being in an, in an exceptional year. You know, COVID has changed the scope of the electorate. The economy is kind of in the tank. Uh, Mail-in ballots add a whole nother complexity, um, most of which is just complete conspiracy, by the way. But mail-in ballots add another layer of complexity. And I think if the Republicans gave Joe Biden four years in office, um, so he's got his own contemporary record to run on. Um, I think, and I kind of fear that the, the Trump stock could could even rise in in, in the four years out of uh, out of office. Powerful stuff, yeah. um, George. 
Ed, Ed covered off quickly on the call. Um, American politics, probably not my strong suit. So just for the other lay people that sort of might be listening on, what did you see, like in your eyes, were the, the key issues of the, of the election? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a interesting time, I suppose. I've just mentioned coronavirus, um, but everything is politicised. Everything is politicised. Um, so you look at some of the exit polls, and I've just kind of slagged off polls a little bit. So you kind of have to be weary of, of the validity of these exit polls. So Oops, take that yeah. path and just, yeah. just flip off. Um, look at somewhere like Wisconsin, which is a battleground state. Um, it has been pretty consistently, apart from the Obama years. Um, it's been ravaged by coronavirus to the point where they've got field hospitals, military-grade hospitals in their state. They've had to build them. They're like our Nightingale Hospital, but even bigger. Um, coronavirus is a huge issue, but 90-odd percent of Donald Trump supporters think he's handling it brilliantly. 90-odd percent of Joe Biden supporters think he's handling it dreadfully. Um so you can't, I don't think you can shake the coronavirus. That's nothing new. That's nothing exciting. Donald Trump kind of staked his um, re-elect on the economy. Mm. The idea that anybody could have been in office when the coronavirus hit the United States, but not anybody can handle the economic recovery as well as I can, as well as Donald Trump can. Yeah. And that kind of reflected quite well in the polls. If you look about all these, you look at all these measures of uh, these head-to-heads against Biden and Trump, the economy was pretty much the only one that Trump was able to maintain a, a decent or a half decent lead on. And, you know, you don't have to go back that far to hear, to remind yourself of James Carville, who ran Bill Clinton's campaigns in the 90s, that that classic idiom, you know, it's the economy stupid. Um, I, I, I kind of, if you dig a little bit deeper off these kind of headline issues of coronavirus versus the economy, that kind of thing, um, an interesting, un, kind of underappreciated uh, piece of data, I think, is always the question of, um, does this candidate care more about me? And there's nothing unique to 2020 about that, by the way. People might be looking to be a bit more receptive if you know they've fallen ill or they've become unemployed as a result of the economic uh, fallout of the pandemic. But if you look at 2012, right, Obama's re-elect, so comparing that to Trump's re-elect attempt, Obama beat Romney on that question pretty handsomely of, does this candidate care more about me? Mm-hmm. Obama lost to Romney on questions of leadership, on questions of foreign policy, on questions of the economy. Yet because that um, lead was so big on do people care about me, because that lead was so big, he was able to, to win re-elect. And it's pretty early days. And, you know, I repeat that caveat that I've given about the validity of exit polls. But it looks like that picture is fairly well mirrored. Trump has beaten Biden on questions of the economy, but has lost massively on the question of does this candidate care about people like me? So I would, in addition to putting the coronavirus as a unique uh, issue this cycle, um, I'd put the economy there all the time, but I'd also put that one there. And it's interesting if people are, uh, you know, perhaps wanting to to explore the US political scene a bit more to to kind of get below the headline issues a little bit and see really what's going on. Thanks for that. I think 
my next question follows on quite nicely from that. So from the outside, being a person of colour myself, I find it quite um, interesting, Trump's apparent sort of populism among like ethnic minorities. How would you how would you explain that? Yeah, completely. Um, I think this is going to be one of the stories of the election, by the way. I think this is huge. And the consequences of which are quite significant for the Democrats. I think it's one of the reasons, one of the reasons why they failed to increase their majority in the House. Um, and possibly even more importantly, it's one of the reasons why they have failed, the Democrats have failed to take control of the Texas state legislature. Now that sounds quite kind of nebulous, um, but it's something that's really important because next year, the, um, the boundaries of, of seats are going to be redrawn. And if Democrats could win the state legislature, they are in control of that process. They didn't even come close, by the way. And I think part of that was because of Trump's appeal uh, to ethnic minorities or, or whatever you want to, want to call it. And I think, first of all, uh, you know, I have to kind of say that you know, I'm a white English guy. I've got no idea why ethnic minorities <laughs> in, in the US might, might vote how they want. I cannot get in their heads. Um, I do not like Donald Trump one bit. Um, but what I kind of can do is pull on some information points and data points that we've got available to us. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the one of the most obvious manifestations of Trump's um, successes with minorities, aside from what's happened in Texas, which I'll talk about in a bit, is this county in Florida called Miami-Dade. Um, it's an area where Democrats really wanted to um, run up the numbers. Under, under Hillary Clinton, they won that county by 63%. Um, there was some polling that came out in September, some rare polling at a county level that indicated Joe Biden might be flagging a little bit. But I think Democrats were quite confident that they'd put a sticking plaster over that particular cut. Well, they, they hadn't, and they hemorrhaged support there. They went from 63% to 53%. And while Joe Biden was able to kind of pick up little pockets of support around uh, the states, around the counties like Duval and Hernando and whatever, the, the bleed from Miami-Dade as a result of Trump's appeal to minorities was, was just almost what it was. it was. It was too much to carry. Um, and I think one of the reasons why that happened in Florida, by the way, is just really easy. Um, Cuban-Americans who occupy that particular county a lot hate socialism. They flee from Castro uh, and they do not touch anything that the left touches, even if the Democrat is Joe Biden, right? <laughs> Mother of Joe Biden. Mm. They, they hate it. And the Republicans hit that message just so ruthlessly, just straight ball, straight bat, so easy. And it, and it really worked. Um, now that that's that's kind of um, you know that's quite a kind of pessimistic view of things. I think you have to be honest with yourselves as well and say these people are interested in good policy, mm. and the Democrats don't have a monopoly on good policy for minorities, nor should they. You know, in a, in a healthy working system, nor should they. And in some ways, Trump's appeal to minorities, which you're right, does exist. Um, it kind of reminded me a little bit of um, gay Republicans in the earlier portion of this uh, decade or, or the earlier portion of this millennium, sorry, 
you know, people would say, how can you support a party that doesn't believe in your right to marry the person you love? And well, you'd kind of hear them say, well, okay, that's one element of my being. And um, I'm quite happy yeah. that government stays out of my sexuality, my race, my gender. Uh, and I'm just looking for policies that help me. And I think Trump was receptive to that. And you can see it in a number of his policy positions, which he has clearly tried to um, underpin with his concern that, uh, of the impact that those policies would have on the demographics that we're speaking about. He's spoke a lot about criminal justice. He spoke a lot about black unemployment. He's spoken a lot, particularly in, in the last few months when uh, businesses have been looted and rioted. He's spoken a lot about minority-owned small business. And I think, I, you know, I, I, um, I saw, a, I saw a, an interview that he did in 2019 when Congress didn't approve funding for the, for the wall. You know, I don't know why Congress needed to, to, to pay for it. I thought Mexico would pay for it. But either way, he turned around and said, all Americans are hurt by uncontrolled illegal immigration. African-Americans and Hispanics are the hardest hit. So he turned an issue that could have been spun um, as, you know, gridlock Congress. It could have been spun as a national security issue. And he made sure that um, ethnic minorities knew that it was an issue about them. And that, that landed well. You know, in the same year, um, a Quinnipiac poll, who are a pretty good pollster, found that uh, 54% of African-Americans and 55% of Latinos thought that illegal border crossings were a really important problem. And I think when you add Donald Trump's kind of eye for marketeering onto that, um, he knows the importance of having Kim Kardashian on side or Kanye West and whatever, you know, I know he ran, but or, or <laughs> Lil Wayne or whatever he's called on side. Um, he, kind of, he kind of gets that. And again, I say, look around what other Republican in the last decade could have increased their share of the um, of the vote amongst those demographics in in the way that he has done. Um, you know that doesn't happen on its own, and and I think there are some um, challenges for the Democrat Party, particularly among young black voters. That legacy relationship that some of the older black voters have with the party, going back to the civil rights era, is kind of being eroded as as the distance between that becomes further and further, that's kind of being eroded. Um, but there was an, there's, an, there's, a, there's a, a large portion of the electorate that is interested in what Donald Trump had to say. And I think he was receptive and understood that and delivered in a way that, um, well, in a way that has, has helped the Republicans in Florida and Texas um, maybe not help them in areas like Atlanta or Philadelphia or Milwaukee. But... Nice, thank you. Um, leading on quite nicely, actually, you've, you've touched on it there already, but if you were to put like an impartial hat on, mm. who do you think actually ran the better campaign? Yeah, well, between Biden and Trump. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. I think as soon as Joe Biden was made the uh, candidate for the Democrat Party, I kind of thought, you know what? Both of these guys are probably best off if they lock themselves in a cellar and do not come out. Until <laughs> Biden was locked in his basement for a while. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you think every time Biden spoke, I was kind of 
left thinking, oh, wow, that guy is really old, isn't he? Um, <laughs> and every time Trump spoke, I was horrified, but for you know different reasons, just horrified at the nonsense he was talking about. Um, so I think that was, that was kind of weird, where you both candidate would probably benefit from just shutting up and letting the other one talk for a little bit longer. Um, Trump loved his rallies, and I think he kind of viewed them as a um, uh, unshakable manifestation, proof of, of his unwavering support. In the era of COVID, there was um, some data that suggested that a lot of people really, really weren't into that weren't into big crowds, weren't into, um, um, you know, weren't into, into gathering in the freezing cold in a, in a late October day. And, and you know, he had a, a rally in Nebraska uh, a few weeks ago where he left a lot of people in the cold, literally. They got hypothermia in the hospital. Apparently, um, I read with, with some of his rallies, um, you'd have to sign a contract to say that you wouldn't sue if you, uh, <laughs> if you caught coronavirus and had to pay the medical fees. It's crazy, isn't it? It's crazy. I mean, just ask Herman Cain, although his Twitter account's still going. He, he went to the uh, Donald Trump rally in Tulsa in June, I think it was, and, and he ended up getting coronavirus and dying. Um, but, you know, I, I think people, um, uh, people were looking... This is just gut feeling, by the way. I don't have any data. Yeah. I think people were looking for a calmness and a steadiness that, you know what, Sleepy Joe actually spoke to quite well. Um, in terms of the objective measures, right, um, Donald Trump ran a pretty disastrous campaign. He went through tons of staff, which is what he always does. He blew about a billion dollars, um, which meant that he was extremely cash poor in the final few weeks. He had to pull adverts out of swing states. And materially, that didn't have an impact. He had to pull adverts out of Ohio. He ends up winning that by seven or eight points. So materially, that didn't have an impact. But it was sort of it was chaotic in, in in its nature. And I don't think in in history, sorry, I don't think in the future people will be looking back at, at this moment of history and wanting to learn lessons from from the Trump campaign. And so I think Biden probably probably edges that. But it was um, as a campaign, pretty underwhelming, not very sensational, but did the job. I think um, Biden went quite hard on um, kind of voter registration and postal voting. I know that in England as well, 90% of people with postal votes vote. It just saves you a lot of effort trying to get them out to vote. So I think, sorry, to kind of answer your question, I think Biden did a very sort of targeted campaign, getting people signed up to vote and getting people to vote by post, which if you look at it now is why he's he's winning all these places he's, he's coming in behind the pennsylvania and then um as they count all the mail-in votes they call them then he's he's um overtaking yeah anyway so um i mean is, is there any kind of final thoughts george do you think trump will still be here in 2024 yeah i, I mean uh, do, oh goodness me it's difficult to get into the mind of a of a, of a humiliated narcissist. Um, I think if he survived, not, not literally, sorry, if he, you know, he overcomes the next few months, then yeah, as I say, I think there's every reason to believe that he's around in 2024. Um, I really do. Um, in terms of kind of final comments, you know, we've been quite ambivalent to Biden's performance. And I've given praise where I have seen it to Trump's performance. 
But I think let's just remember, if it goes the way that it's looking like, whereby the lead that Biden has over Donald Trump maintains or even potentially grows, then this will be the biggest popular vote lead um, in terms of raw votes anyone has had since 1932, since FDR beat Herbert Hoover in that humiliating um, election. It's the electoral college that presents a bit of a mirage and, and blurs the lines. Um, but again, I'm going to quote Kellyanne Conway again, and because I came across a tweet that she did four years ago when Joe Biden, uh, when Donald Trump, sorry, won with 306 electoral college votes, she said historic landslide. So you know, I want nothing if if not consistency. If Trump's 306 electoral college votes are a historic landslide, then I think we have to um, have to be similarly positive about Biden's performance. He delivered where he needed to deliver. He delivered where he, you know, he he got elected or he won the nomination to deliver. Um, exit polls again, caveat. Reckon he carried eight uh, percent of Trump's vote. That's big. That's materially big. He won independence by 10 points more than Hillary did. He won moderates by 12 points more than Hillary did. He won back not only the states of the Midwest, but also really important counties. Um, Erie, Bucks, Montgomery and Pennsylvania were kind of the bread and butter of Biden's victory. Um, and he also managed to squeeze out 30,000 more votes in Milwaukee, Wisconsin um, than Hillary did. Now, Biden will win Wisconsin by a total of 20,000. So to be able to do that in the urban areas that he needed to do and the suburban areas that he needed, um, it's probably fair that we at least give a give a nod to, to the job that he's done. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, anyway, um, that was a bloody good discussion, I thought. And thank you very much for um, taking the time out of your Friday evening to, to chat to us about American politics. No, chaps, a huge pleasure. And you're absolutely right. You know, the pub's maybe shut, but it, it is a Friday evening and I'm sure the beers are calling you as well, particularly after this uh, after this week. Um, a real pleasure to be on. I think, um, you know, what you guys do at, at Backbench is absolutely fantastic in an industry that is, uh, you know, difficult to get your, your foot in the door, uh, the platform that you offer uh, for, you know, quantity and quality is, is pretty peerless, I'd say. And it often forces me to, to rethink what I'm doing when I uh, am humbled <laughs> by the views of the people who you get to write and speak for you. So thank you very, very much. Thank you very much, George. Pleasure to speak Cheers, to you. Cheers, George. Have, no, a good have, have a good weekend. See you, See you both. We're um, going to stay on and do a little post-outro, I think. So that's Fine. why I haven't shut the thing yet. <laughs> yeah, no worries. I didn't know how you wanted to do that, whether you'd stop recording or not. If I just leave now, we good? Yeah, 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 fine, good, yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, chaps. Keep well. See you later. Right, Cheers. Yeah. Good bloke. Yeah, <laughs> genuinely. He was, um, it wasn't what I was expecting, to be honest. No, not at all. He's like, for some reason, he's like younger than I was expecting as well. And like newer stuff. And he spoke very, he's very articulate. I was, I was, yeah, I enjoyed that a lot. Like you said, it's not, not an area that I know much about or, or really followed with much intent in the media but he sort of he painted it in a good picture I think for someone who hasn't really followed it or doesn't necessarily know loads about it yeah agreed and I think sometimes 
um, like I said to you earlier, sometimes people who do, uh, well, just are interested in politics or work in it or write about it, they sometimes tend to kind of overanalyze things or they're thinking too technically about it. Yeah. And yeah. They, there's a lot of jargon, there's a lot of kind of assumptions, but I don't think um, that was like that at all. I thought that was, that was a good conversation. Yeah. Um, no, completely agree, mate. Completely agree. I think, yeah, from some of not technical knowledge, he sort of explained it in a way that was like deep enough to be interesting, but not too much. So it's sort of going over your head. So. Yeah, I mean, I still don't know what's going on really with the election, but let's sort of find that out. Yeah, I did. Um, what I did like as well is that he would sort of give an impartial opinion, but he very much did have an opinion on stuff as well. Like he wasn't like being too like argumentative or clouding his judgment. He was sort of giving a fair answer, but it was also quite obvious to think, like, see, like what he was thinking about stuff or like who he prefers. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So who have we got lined up for future weeks and soys? Uh, we've got um, a week next Thursday. We've got uh, Daisy Cooper, the deputy leader of the Lib Dems and education spokesperson, one of the what? few MPs that they have. Um, <laughs> and, and following that, we've got, um, well, we're chatting to Dr. Martin Farr about the threats or the biggest threats to society. Love that. I'm looking forward to that. Just so people are aware, Martin Farr was actually one of mine and Ed's lecturers at university. So very, very excited for him to come and speak to us. Here now with more news, debate and opinion.